Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, May the 5th, 2023. Uh, bad news on the media front. It always seems to be bad news when it comes to media. These days, uh, BuzzFeed News is being shut down. Actually, the announcement was made a couple of weeks ago. Uh, BuzzFeed News uh, was one of the innovators, the pioneers of high-quality online news, won a Pulitzer Prize for some of its work. The co-founder and current CEO of, uh, of uh, BuzzFeed, uh, Jonah Peretti, a legendary online figure, uh, has regrets, whatever that means. Um, but it's part of a broader issue uh, in Greek uh, metaphorical terms, in terms of tragedy. It's the tragedy of Icarus. Vice and BuzzFeed are all falling to earth. They got too close to the sun. Um, and so they fell to earth. Uh, and uh, this is part of a broader crisis, perhaps, of online information and news, not just Vice and BuzzFeed, but also Gorka, all casualties of what the New Yorker calls the traffic wars. And appropriately enough, there's a new book out on these traffic wars by Ben Smith, someone who knows all about um, BuzzFeed news. He was the original guy there. Uh, and he's joining us today from the People's Republic of Brooklyn, full of journalists, Ben. Are they all on the streets these days? None of them have jobs. I mean, I can't walk outside without tripping over one, but they do see, you know, it's very, very low unemployment these days. It's, in all uh, seriousness, though, every week, every month, I've been in the internet business sphere since right at the beginning. There's always this these stories about the crisis of online news, and it's rather like cockroaches. You go to bed at night, and in the morning, there are more of them. Uh, are we really at the end of a cycle? Is this what you argue in traffic about this broad crisis of quality online news? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly at the end of a cycle that was shaped by social media. I mean, that's sort of, that's what, you know, when I got to BuzzFeed in 2012, our sort of, you know, our core idea was we'd build a news organization that was sort of built on top of and wrapped around social media, Facebook, Twitter, others. And we got enormous scale that way, but we never built a business and that, that was sustainable. And I think that's, and I think a lot of, you know, all of these different outlets racing to scale, um, you know, found that they were building on this totally unstable surface of, of particularly Facebook, which, you know, in some sense was their competitor for advertising. And also, you know, itself became kind of nervous about news as news became toxic and polarizing. And then eventually, you know, both moved out of the business entirely, and I think is the it will struggle to retain its own kind of cultural relevance. Was it doomed from the beginning? Brian uh, Stelter, who's another like you guy, has been in this space for many years, believes that the race to go viral killed digital media. Is what or was virality what was promised as the fix, the thing that would make us all rich? Is that the thing that killed digital media or has killed it? You know, I think it's easy to say that things were doomed from the beginning after the after they're dead. Um, but no, I think there were particularly a lot, there were a series of choices made by the people, particularly by the people running the platforms, to stick with user generated content, um, to moderate and not moderate in certain ways that I think probably could have played out differently. 
the book, which I really enjoyed, it's beautifully written, it's compelling. There's a viral quality to it, Ben, even if we don't win <laughs> online in terms but of even viral, is a viral content, book. you do it with books. You Once you start, you can't stop on traffic. It focuses in particular on, on two characters, Peretti, um, who I've already talked about, the co-founder of BuzzFeed News, right there from the beginning, involved with the co-founding also of the Huffington Post, and a man called Nick Denton, who is slightly less well-known, has disappeared recently. Why did you choose Denton and Peretti to tell this story of the rise and fall of viral online news? You know, when I went sort of looking for the origin story, it really was in this New York media scene in the early 2000s. And it's it's hard to remember, but you know, you, you were there and you're in San Francisco. And remember after the bubble popped in San Francisco, you know, in, in 99 to 2001, there was this sense that maybe like the valley was over and that the new center of innovation was going to be New York. This feels totally delusional in retrospect, but there was this incredible sort of set of companies, most of them kind of connected to and around media, but I put Foursquare and things like that in that category too, Etsy, um, that were in New York. And there was a bunch of investment and a bunch of interest in these, these new New York companies. And of the media companies, the two founders who in some ways were the most ambitious and, and had saw that this wasn't just some interesting little hobby, but could really be a huge future of media were, were Jonah Peretti and Nick Denton. But they had very, very different visions and were personal friends and then rivals in a way that made it, I think, you know, a good story to tell. Yeah, it's a people's story. Uh, tell us a little bit about Peretti. Uh, you seem... Uh, still fond of him. You work very closely with him. He's clearly a man of great ability, but also great limitations. So he, um, you know, he had not come up thinking of himself as a journalist. He was, and again, to sort of go back to the 90s for this language, but he was what you would call a culture jammer. He, um, you yeah, know, he's an Oakland his... guy just over the bay. Yeah. And, and you tell an interesting story about his mom and how he was, a, I wouldn't say he was autistic, but there's certainly a an element to him of a brilliantly misunderstood child. Yeah, and he was very badly dyslexic and didn't do well in school and when and you know until high school and where he went to and he went to UC Santa Cruz. He wasn't on some sort of New York media track um, and went to MIT Media Lab to sort of tinker essentially with with these digital things. And while he was there, sort of happened into this really interesting experience that changed his life, which was he was trying he was bored and. Um, saw that and he's, a, he's sort of a sneakerhead and saw that Nike was letting you customize shoes with your, you know, with your name or whatever. And um, which was some new, some new online promotion of Nikes. And so he tried to customize it with the word sweatshop and the customer service representative wrote back that that violated the terms of service. And Jonah wrote back that, well, actually he'd read the terms of service and that was in line with the terms of service. And they had this very long back and forth, which ended with Jonah saying that, okay, he understood he wouldn't get the shoes, but could they send him a photograph of the seven-year-old Vietnamese girl who had assembled them, um, which ended the conversation. And he then thought he was very clever and that this was funny and forwarded it to, you know, a dozen friends. And pretty soon it was everywhere. You know, it was on every nascent blog. Hundreds of thousands of people had seen this forwarded email in the way of email forwards in the old days. And pretty soon he's on the Today Show debating a representative of Nike on a subject that Jonah basically knows nothing about. He's not an anti-sweatshop campaigner. And yeah, I guess the experience could have turned him into a sweatshop campaigner, but instead just got him hooked on this idea that there was a new form of distributing media that was not broadcast towers and printing presses, but was 
doing things that people will tell their friends about and will spread in this new digital space. And that's really became his career. Denton uh, and uh, Peretti are, are different characters. You stress that, but they, just from reading the book, um, perhaps they have something in common. I wouldn't say they're intellectually hollow, but there's no ideological core to either man. Denton got a lot of pleasure, like lots of North Londoners, uh, in annoying people. Uh, and Peretti loved the idea of viral traffic, but neither of them come across as substantively political. You mentioned the fact that Peretti didn't care one way or the other about sweatshops. I would say, no, I mean, I think they were lightly political. I mean, Jonas certainly was progressive and had come from Oakland. It was probably but you're right. I mean, just... a, bit of, a bit of a Tory, actually, and came out of British media. But but uh, yes, but they weren't ideological. They weren't ideological in the traditional sense. They were true believers in this new internet thing. I mean, they weren't businessmen either. I mean, they were, but they weren't first and foremost. They, you know, they were sort of, I mean, their ideology was about this new medium. And I don't know, I think you meet people. You, there used to be lots of people like that who were sort of believers in the power of the internet to transform society for the better, basically. I think that's probably You remind the us throughout the, the stuff from Peretti that he didn't care about money, which uh, my reading of you or the book suggests that that's a compliment, but perhaps that mm. was a weakness, do you think? Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't, I mean, I think that, I mean, I don't know, you know, whether you like people who care about money or not, that's sort of, you know, not my, that, that, that's not for me to judge. It's certainly at some point, I think as a CEO, I mean, you sort of, you know, I think, you know, there's a point at which you would like your CEO to be obsessed with making money because that is what fuels the company. And I think he learned that lesson eventually, but it wasn't, it sort of wasn't why he got into it. He didn't have experience running a business. Yeah. And uh, one of the most memorable scenes in the book is how Peretti, decided very unwisely not to be acquired by Disney. Uh, and maybe in that sense, in terms of his indifference to money, maybe he can com be compared to, to Zuckerberg, who for all his faults has built a much more successful business than Peretti. And at the beginnings, they, they knew each other. And, and as you suggest in the book, there was even talk of Facebook acquiring uh, BuzzFeed or at least hiring uh, Peretti. Yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed was very bound up in the story of Facebook. I mean, Zuckerberg and, and Peretti knew each other. Zuckerberg tried to buy BuzzFeed in 2011. When I arrived, Jonah was to the office the first time on my sort of first day in, in the new office in 2012. Jonah was holding a gift card that he had been sent as the sort of consolation prize from having said no. $50, right? Yeah, $50 to the charity of your Very choice. Very generous. And a water bottle. Um, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and I think I think that he bought into Mark's vision in a pretty serious way and thought that, but also thought he could sort of persuade Zuckerberg that there had to be a professional content layer. I mean, the, you know, the metaphor, which did not pan out that we were running on was that this was like the birth of cable and there would be a new form of distribution and it would naturally require purpose-built media that was native, like ESPN and CNN and MTV were for cable. And that these platforms wouldn't be able to survive if they didn't create a business model that allowed complementary content to survive um obviously that is not how it played out I'm, it's also not clear these platforms will survive and so i'm not sure i'm well, not sure in the end forever uh, i'm not uh, sure if we were delusional or if it just didn't break that way i think that's an open debate ben earlier this week we did a show on uh, eleanor roosevelt and of course whenever she comes up she's described as the 
conscience of FDR, who was a man beyond or post-conscience. Were you, in a sense, and was BuzzFeed News Peretti's conscience? Was his, his concession to making the world a, a little better place? Or, or, or was there really a coherent business reason for BuzzFeed News? You know, at first there was a coherent business reason, which was that BuzzFeed needed for, you know, to, to tell its own story to advertisers and to partners, very important partners being the platforms. It couldn't be seen as a site that re-aggregated other people's memes. Like there was, there were other sites of that era that are forgotten, Cheeseburger and Nine Gag and Break.com that were already seen as essentially spam and the platforms that controlled internet distribution were killing them. And I think Jonah and the chairman of the company, Ken Lear, sort of saw the BuzzFeed, you know, had built this enormous scale, but urgently needed to kind of move up market and become culturally relevant, sort of culturally important. And, that, and that's what news does. And, and so that was sort of the initial logic. Um, I think when news, it, it also, it was a moment, which is hard to remember when the Facebook news feed was this, cool novelty in which you saw, you know, thoughtful articles and cat pictures and, you know, your friends, pictures from your cousin's wedding and all mixed up together. And people kind of liked that. And so it also made sense that we were building into this, we we're building the full range of content that people on this great platform, everybody loved, enjoyed. Come 2015, 2016, that, that, reverses american news news in lots of places in the world becomes very polarizing very toxic um and that's where it gets difficult you have this date which you said represents the climax the best moment perhaps not just of buzzfeed or social media but of the internet generally uh the dress that broke the internet um tell us about that story of why it was the you didn't know it at the time as you acknowledge you were there why it was the moment that um, after which everything would change, February 26, 2015, in symbolic terms, politically, and certainly in terms of the story of BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed News, and even your own career. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the last really like lighthearted day before the internet became devoted to people screaming at each other about politics. In the morning, there was a, um, a lot, it was the sort of thing that used to happen all the time in terms of essentially. Every, the whole nation or the whole world's attention being focused on something totally silly and diverting. In the morning, some llamas got loose. I believe it was in Arizona, and, and we all watched them and talked about them, you know, running around, being chased by hapless sheriffs for a couple hours. And then that afternoon, it was uh, a, a woman had uh, messaged the BuzzFeed Tumblr, said she'd been to a wedding, taken a picture of a dress, and she and her mom were disagreeing on whether it was white and gold or blue and black, which seemed insane. And she wanted BuzzFeed and its audience to resolve it. And so we posted that and it just became, you know, this instant global phenomenon in a way that felt, you know, not just harmless, but kind of nice. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a show with um, Edmund Fawcett. He's an intellectual historian. He's written two books, one on conservatism, one on liberalism. I'm not sure if you've, you've read them, but they're really good. And he, at one point he has this brilliant remark. He said, well, politics, chess, liberals had white. They moved first. Conservatives had black. They counted liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives, who began as anti-moderns, came to master modernity. For the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. I thought of that quote when I was reading Traffic, not in ideological terms, but because of the way you suggest that the right has mastered 
medium, digital media in particular, you talk quite a lot about Breitbart, who's the third figure, I guess, in the Peretti-Denton story of traffic. But what your book seems to suggest is that in the beginning, people on the left, whether they were the soft left like Peretti or Denton or otherwise, thought that they'd mastered this media. But really what happened from 2015 or perhaps earlier onwards was it was the right. It was not so much Breitbart, who had obviously died then, but uh, the people who inherited digital media from Andrew Breitbart. What happened, Ben? Why, why did or why has the right mastered viral media more than the left? Yeah, I mean, I, it's inter so interesting because this was what maybe surprised me both and most in going back to report out the book was the extent to which the folks building that early digital media space, it was just presumed that it was a progressive environment, whatever their personal politics were. I mean, Facebook was obviously a Democratic Party machine because it you know, it was full of college kids. Who are they going to vote for? In fact, Obama visits Facebook, I think, in 2011. And even then, it's seen as sort of just goes without saying that it's a place that's sympathetic to kind of young progressive people because that's who was on the internet. Um, and, and in some sense, you know, the election of Barack Obama was seen as of the apogee of this new progressive energy. Um, and, and then you look up and actually, and it's really, be, you know, by, yeah, 2014, 2015, it's pretty clear that this, you know, sort of wide open gatekeeper free, medium is best suited of all to this new populist right that like thrives on kind of transgression that is looking to destroy any institution it can touch that doesn't that is you know that sometimes lies for the sake of lying to be provocative and all those things just feed perfectly into the both into you know i think into lots of genuine human anger among the people who are now on the internet which is to say a much broader spectrum of older people of people who don't have college degrees of kind of what become the Trump base in the U S and the U in the sort of, um, you know, the, the Brexit voters in the UK and similar kind of popular mo populist movements elsewhere. Um, yeah. So, so I think it just, it, it, like it turned out that these tools, which were really fundamentally great at waging war on the establishment, the soft Obama liberalism was just a precursor to what they could really do. But is there something about these tools that lend themselves more to a, a Steve Bannon, for example, with his, shall we say, uh, Leninist qualities or even Peter Thiel and their you know, obsession think, with power and gaining power? I mean, I think these tools were by definition just sort of, you know, they were uncontrolled, except by the scruples of the people using them. You could publish whatever you wanted. And I remember I went I went and I read about this in the book in 2016 to meet Bannon at Trump Tower. And he was he had been making a real study of BuzzFeed. He'd been running Breitbart before he became chairman of the Trump campaign. And the thing that he was most puzzled by was why we hadn't gone all in for Bernie Sanders the way Trump had for Breitbart, just because that's where the traffic was. And we hadn't because we had these basically establishmentarian scruples about trying to be fair and trying to tell the truth. And if you're unbound by those, it's a big advantage. I'm sure you read the the New Yorker review. The book's been very well received. And the New Yorker, uh, Nathan Heller, liked the book. But he said that your superpower isn't self-examination. He suggests... It seems like that, a fair fair personal criticism. <laughs> it, I mean, respond to that. I mean, I think Heller's point is that you, 
the, the story begins as a broader story about the internet and then in a sense becomes the Ben Smith story. Did you intend to tell the broader story of the internet or the Ben Smith story, or are they the same stories? No, they're not the same story. And I think I'm a secondary character at best in this book. And it's and it very much. Yeah, but you had access story. and you were right there. It's, it's almost as if, I don't know, Trotsky or Stalin writing about the Russian Revolution. And that's a great analogy. I really think of myself as the, as the Trotsky at this moment. Um, the um, yeah. So, no, I, it isn't. It's like one. Of, it's like some guy you have never heard of who worked for Trotsky for a little while doing it. Yeah, but you um, ran, you ran BuzzFeed yeah. News. You weren't just some guy. No, no. And I think we just, I, I thought Nathan's piece was really thoughtful. And what he's talking about there is, is specific. There is a, there's a couple of specific moments when I was a primary character. And one of them was in a chapter about this, this guy, Benny Johnson, who to me is sort of emblematic of what we were just talking about. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't around with, you know, Andrew Breitbart at the founding of Huffington Post, but it is remarkable to think, huh, like this guy who was the founder of the New Right also co-founded Huffington Post. And one of the things about the book that I noticed to my surprise was these central figures of the populist, right? The founder of the Proud Boys, um, Gavin McInnes, for instance, was a co-founder of Vice. You know, they were around in this downtown New York media scene, sort of lingering around the edges, and then they would become the central figures in the next decade. But the one I worked closely with was a guy named Benny Johnson, who is now a leader of a Turning Point USA. And I had thought that he was there's a long tradition in American kind of main center left media that you of hiring Republicans who, you know, keep you it's not in most, you know, college educated journalists working in cities lean left. And it's healthy to have some people from with other backgrounds and other politics, you know, but who have the shared respect at some level for what you're doing, even if they disagree on some stuff. And I totally misread the situation in the moment and thought that's what he was. And, and instead he was really kind of emblematic of this new generation of, you know, pop populist conservatives who weren't at all interested in the truth among other things. Um, and I, I don't know, I tell that story. I don't, I mean, that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not particularly defensive about it. But do you think rather than thinking in left and right, perhaps as you suggested, there were both conservatives and leftists involved in the, the founding of the Huffington Post and, 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 and many other vice as well. Is there another way of thinking about political categories? I mean, you, you, you're, you're, you, you know politics as well as anything. Should we be thinking of people who think in perhaps viral terms and people who think in traditional terms? Yeah, I mean, I think there was sort of, an, you know, the establishment and the outsiders. And at first, you know, the establishment in the, you know, the establishment media of the early aughts was totally disconnected from the way people really communicated online. Like it was, you know, Condé Nast magazines where if you went to their website, they just asked you for, um, you know, to sign up for the print publication and, and various other, um, you know, and, and the New York Times, the television networks, they weren't really on the Internet in any meaningful sense. Um Excuse the dog wandering through the frame. Yeah, here. I thought it was a cat. It was no, more appropriate since we're talking about the internet to have a cat. large dog. Um, goes where she wants. Um, and then on the, um, you know, and then the outsiders, in some sense, were jointly waging a war on this this establishment media that, by the way, had really profoundly discredited itself in its coverage of the Iraq War. And so there was really a context in which a lot of people were skeptical and rightly of, of what was going on at these publications. And so that's the context in which it makes sense for Ariana Huffington to be starting a left-wing thing and go try to hire a right-winger to help her run it. Cause they're both in this shared. Mm. Kind of and of course they all need their Kenny Lair as the guy who can write the checks. 
So what comes next, uh, Ben? Uh, what comes after the social media era? Most people agree it's sort of finishing now. You have an interesting piece a section in the book in which you suggest that the New York Times has fought back and has actually uh, beaten or BuzzFeed or certainly BuzzFeed News. Are we just returning to an age of uh, strong uh, subscriber-based platforms like New York Times, Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal? Have we returned to what we thought we destroyed or is something new out there? I mean, I think that to some degree, yes, like the pendulum has swung back. Um, people, alien, you know, I think consumers ultimately got really sick of the chaos and untrustworthiness of social media and viral media and want, and, and the sort of just sense of you weren't sure what was what and who you were hearing from. And, and then meanwhile, these legacy publications that had great content and great brands you know, figure the easy part was figuring out the internet in the end, and they did it. And so sort of were able to beat a lot of these challengers at their own games and sort of absorb a lot of their best ideas, technology, people um, into into these legacy institutions. So I think that is part of it. But I, and I think, you know, there's sort of the val, there's a question of, I mean, I don't think we're probably, I talked to Tina, my colleague talked to Tina Brown about this the other day, the great mm -hmm. former New Yorker editor who said, yes, we're going back to print. That's the next stop. And I'm not sure literal print is the next stop, although the resilience of print books is certainly a sign. Well, Nathan of Heller, in his excellent review, suggests that he, in dreamy moods, he, he fantasizes about journalism uh, not chasing traffic, not offering audiences everything they could possibly want in haste of form. Are we returning to the age of vinyl, just as music has? We had Celeste Marcus on from Liberty's uh, traditional quarterly publication without advertising that seems to be doing quite well is is the print business following music and returning to previous mediums? i mean i think i think like music vinyl you know like vinyl print is sort of coming back as a sort of boutique beautiful nostalgia product it's not replacing spotify um and i but i think the um yeah, I think the question and certainly what I'm in, you know, my new place some before that we're sort of wrestling with and trying to figure, you know, the, the lane that we're in. Is I think there is a, a sort of return in some sense to print values. Like I think that you have readers who've been really overwhelmed and alienated and lot, you know, by just the amount of incoming and the undifferentiated content and are looking for trusted human individual voices who are communicating really transparently, who are giving you the facts giving you their opinions, know the difference between those things and are bringing in views from all over. I mean, that's, that's what we're trying to do. And in some sense, the newsletter, which is sort of shockingly, you know, it's, we do a lot of it and it's the newsletters are sort of the main delivery vehicle for news these days or one of them. They do replicate print in that they, you know, they, they have a kind of, the editor has to sort of like decide what the most important story is, put it on top. They have a kind of hierarchy there. Also, they require a level of concision. Yeah, that's what Semaphore seems like. When uh, when it was announced, of course, it came in the New York Times, you and another Smith, Justin, have founded it. But you can't just be returning to the past. There's got to no. be something new about Semaphore. Are you uh, a broader version of Substack, for example? Well, I think what, you know, for for a certain kind of journal, like for journalists who break news, I mean, there, there's you can't there's not really space on Substack for somebody who needs the support of an institution, of colleagues, of lawyers, of editors, because you're doing high stakes, aggressive political, financial, tech journalism that 
you know, they, they, they just it's that kind of reporter, which I am, I suppose, doesn't doesn't want to work on their own. And that's not what, what you see on Substack or who has succeeded on Substack. But I think we're in a world where the audience feels very connected to individuals rather than institutions, which is why Substack and other platforms have been so successful. And I think what we're trying to create, and this is more my recruiting pitch than my pitch to an audience, but is to some degree the best of both worlds, the place, you know, a great journalist can come, have a big brand, have a direct connection to the audience as they would on Substack, but also have the best of a great newsroom. Are you going to give Peretti and Denton jobs? Um, I think they're, I don't, I'm not sure either of them are coming to me. In all seriousness, though, Ben, finally, um, another piece of news today is that the Biden administration have announced that they're going to invest $140 million to launch seven new AI, national AI research institutes. What seems to follow our social media age is the age of AI, of generative AI, of open AI, and, and, and an enormously disruptive period. It seems as if AI was designed, or generative AI was designed to replace BuzzFeed, that those lists can be done by a machine. How do you see AI affecting, reshaping media? Can it be done? I mean, I'm sure you've given it a lot of thought on Semaphore. Will it mean that only the highest quality journalism can be done? Uh, by humans and everything else is going to be done by machines and that will once again clear out the middle ground uh, and enable a few winners perhaps like semaphore or the new york times and everything else to be machine driven you know i don't know i think it's it's often predictions of exactly what a huge disruptive new technology are going to do can be can be a little off and i don't feel kind of confident predicting. I mean, I do think though, as you say, like these large language models, the thing they're good at is language. And this is something that will disrupt language. But, you know, most, I think people, because most of what you consume as a consumer of say the New York Times is words. It's easy to think most journalism is just cranking out words, but actually most journalism is gathering facts and thinking about what you're trying to say and figuring out your audience. And so I do think there are elements of it that AI will do well and, sort of parts of the workflow. And who knows if you fed, you know, if you fed a model every single episode of Law and Order, could it write you a new episode? And then maybe just have a writer bang it up, polish it up a little, but you wouldn't need a writer's room with 10 writers. I think that's what TV writers are worried about. And I think there are similar things in journalism. But I, but I also think there's a lot of, you know, the democracy. I do think that there's one of the real tragedies of American journalism is it used to be a trade that brought in a much more diverse group of people and it ed- economically and educationally, and it's come to be dominated by people who went to college and write really well, but because it's, it, because there used to be writing used to be one specialization. And I don't know if there, when there are people who are great at gathering facts and used to call a rewrite guy to do the writing. And I think there's something kind of interesting in there that, that, writing doesn't is is to some you know the the core skill of going out and figuring out what is happening if if the technology tilts the balance of journalism a little further toward that it opens the door to a lot more people and and i think to better journalism in an interesting way